The scripture reading today comes from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by, by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. It's Palm Sunday, and uh, I see many of you with palms. Um, This is a tradition. I was just informed by Rachel that the tradition is Palm Sunday services and sermons are so boring that you need something in your hands, and so if you want to make a cross, that's what it's for. The other great tradition of Palm Sunday is self-examination. Palm Sunday is preparation for Easter, Jesus' death and resurrection. And traditionally, it's a time to reflect on who Jesus is. What does he mean to you personally? What does it mean for your life and how you lived, have you lived this year? What does his life and death tell you? What does it tell you about who you are and who your family is? What does it say about how you should live and what your priorities are? One way to do that, by the way, is to use the week before Easter to go through the story yourself, choose a gospel, and daily read the story. The events in Jerusalem are central to all the gospels, and most of them devote most of their energy to what happened in Jerusalem. And so this is a good thing to do for Christians. Maybe even consider fasting, replacing a meal with a time where you read the Bible and you reflect, where you journal where you think about your life and your families and the priorities of your life. If you're a parent, you are a spiritual leader. You are forming the next generation of Christians. So call on God to help you with that. This is the time that you do it as you think about who Jesus is and what he means. So, another Boring Palm Sunday sermon. Let's go. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, on the Mount of Olives. So they, this is Jesus and his disciples, after Peter's confession of him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, Jesus, after three years, switches direction, and he goes straight for Jerusalem. His work in terms of personal witness is done. His work with the disciples is done. And now he has work to do at Jerusalem. They approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. If you climb from the Jordan Valley up to Jerusalem, you start at Bethany, 
at the base of the mountain. This is where Jesus and his disciples spent the night with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. From there, from Bethany, you climb up the mountain. It's a little over two miles. And you arrive at the ridge, which is the Mount of Olives. And from there, you look across the Kidron Valley. You're looking west with the sun behind you. And the walls of Jerusalem and the temple are right there. In the morning sun, they must have been beautiful, golden, in the sunrise. And there Jesus pauses, considers what's going to happen, and send his disciples on ahead of him. Psalm 48 says of Jerusalem, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life and identity. The city of kings, it was conceived by perhaps the greatest king of Israel, David, and built by his son, Solomon, also one of the great kings of Israel. It was hoped by Israel that one day a Messiah, a new king, would return, throw off the occupation of Rome, the, uh, the brutal suppression of Israel, and inaugurate a new kingdom, a new era, from the throne in Jerusalem. And so that was their hope, that God would restore Israel's former glory. But it was more than that. It wasn't just a throne for a king. Jerusalem is where God and man met together. At its very core, there is the temple that David built, uh, his son built, Solomon built, but David conceived, where heaven and earth, according to the Old Testament, meet, where God and man come together. In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews describes the temple. It's uh, inner rooms. In its first room, with a lampstand, and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. The lampstand perpetually renewed, so it was always lit, the symbol of Israel. The table and consecrated bread, symbols of the whole sacrificial system and the necessity for atonement to be paid. Behind the second curtain, so there's a curtain which only the priesthood could enter into the holy place. But then there was a second curtain. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies, which had the golden altar of incense and a gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar, jar of manna, the manna that God fed to Israel as it uh, was in the desert for 40 years. Aaron's staff that had budded, if you go back into uh, Numbers, there was a rebellion, and God chose uh, someone to support Moses by budding his staff, making it um, bear branches and leaves. That was in there too. And the stone tablets of the covenant, 
the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he had brought down to share with Israel and turn them from a rabble of slaves into a nation of law-abiding citizens. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. And so there, in the Holy of Holies, alone and silent in the darkness, you have the Ark of the Covenant. And on its lid, the lid of atonement, there are two cherubim with their wings overshadowing the, the Ark. And between them, the Shekinah glory of God, the personal presence of God to Israel, showing that they were his people and he was their God. Right there, in front of Jesus, as he looked across the Kidron Valley, he could see that temple. But it was also a place of blood and of sacrifice. Because God is holy and perfect. And how do you approach a perfect and holy God if you are a sinful, fallen creature? There has to be a payment. Somebody has to suffer. There has to be blood for a perfectly holy God to meet with those that are unholy. It's like a straw man meeting the sun or a snowman being out in the sun. It's unnatural. There needs to be some mechanism to allow them to come together. And that's what the temple, and in fact all of Jerusalem, was about. Ordinary people couldn't even go up the hill to the temple without some kind of sacrifice. The priesthood had to sacrifice daily to cleanse themselves just to serve in the temple. The chief priest, after elaborate preparations in special clothing, once a year was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies to serve God there, to make sure everything was okay. But he did so with fear and trembling. He had a little bell with him that he kept ringing to show that he was still alive. And in case he died in God's presence, there was a rope around his waist so the other priests could pull him out of there without having to go in. That is how much they revered God. That's the sense of holiness at the very center of Jerusalem. And so Jesus there, he's on the Mount of Olives, Bethpage, he's looking at those golden walls, he would have seen the temple, and it's the part of Jerusalem that faces to the east. He would have seen it, and he would have known immediately what it meant for him to go into Jerusalem. In fact, from there, he would have been able to see the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew that he was going to be betrayed. Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Jesus knows exactly what is happening. Jesus chose to go up that mountain. Jesus is choosing to enter Jerusalem on his own terms, according to his own timetable, by his own means. There's a song that uh, we used to sing, Sing to the Lord 
And I had this line that always used to drive me crazy, speaking about Jesus, mighty victim from the sky. That is nonsense. It's blasphemous is what it is. Jesus was no victim. He wasn't caught up in something he didn't understand. Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Jesus went there clear-eyed and ready to do what needs to be done. He was no victim. He was a hero. He was facing death for his people. And he did it deliberately in a manner of his choosing according to his own timetable. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah had been written 500 years earlier. And so we see here, Jesus is not just winging it, he's fulfilling prophecy. It's as if a vast ancient pattern is coming together. The forces of history are coming into alignment. And Jesus is not just going to cross that valley to go into the belly of the beast against the Roman Empire. There are bigger things afoot. He's stepping into the path of an unfolding history. Great forces are coming together. Inevitable and righteous, prophesied by God's people. And Jesus deliberately steps into the middle of that, knowing that he is going to be caught up in these vast forces, knowing the significance of everything that is going to happen. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, for Jesus to sit on. Why does he ride a donkey? You know, in another place, Jesus says he is able to summon legions of angels if he needs to. Why a donkey? Because he is not like a human king. Human kings come on war horses at the heads of armies or at a chariot and a great celebration. But Jesus is revealing a new kind of kingdom. One in which the king is gentle and humble and comes to serve and not impose his will. Because we have such a king, Christians don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be afraid of dictatorship or tyranny or being forced to do what they don't want to do. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Hosanna means God save him. The people are recognizing something extraordinary has happened is happening. It doesn't say that there are palm branches here, but we know from the other Gospels that they were. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, palm branches were a sign 
of God's presence, a celebration of prophets or events that were fulfilling God's purpose. But they were also a Roman symbol. The god of war and triumph, Nike, was celebrated using palms. And so to many onlookers looking, initially it must have looked like some triumphant king returning. But of course he's on a donkey. A triumph that doesn't require armies. A king who comes humbly and meekly. It must have seemed like a contradiction. It must have been hard for the people to understand. But you know, they're hoping. Hosanna to the son of David. David, King David, was a man after God's own heart. And the people were still hoping that the Messiah would be in his lineage, as the Bible promised, and would be a king just like David, and throw off the Romans. I was thinking about this passage. Um, I've preached this passage several times. And it also always strikes me that I probably have a completely different idea in my head when I read this to most of you. Because to most of you, American citizens, kings and queens seem must seem hopelessly old-fashioned, hopelessly anachronistic. Why would that be an exciting thing to come into an American's life? A few years ago, I saw the queen next to President Obama and his wife. And, you know, she's a lovely woman, but she seems so old so terribly old and fragile, uh, like your favorite grandmother or, you know, an aunt or somebody. If you saw her trying to cross the road, you'd go and help her in case she got damaged. There was no sign of strength or majesty or anything that seemed terribly hopeful for her. A few years ago, I stood up and I became an American citizen, and I re renounced my subjection to the will of that lovely old lady. I'd grown up being subject to her will my entire life. And I stood in federal court, and I promised to support and defend the Constitution, and I promised that I would bear harms on behalf of the United States when required to by the law. But you know, what is the difference between a Constitution and a king or a queen? The biggest difference is that a constitution is a sign of freedom, but it can't make you free. There are many constitutions in the world, many of them modeled on the American constitution, and many of them are very corrupt, dangerous societies. You can love a constitution, but it can't love you back. You can defend a constitution, but it can't defend you. It's just a piece of paper. A constitution lets free people live together. But it can't fight for you. It can't rescue you when you're lost. It is a statement of ideals of free people. But by itself, it cannot save those who are not free. It is the absolute opposite of a gospel. A constitution is a statement about what condition you're in. The gospel 
is good news because it's good news to those who are not free, those who are lost, those who don't get justice, those who are suffering. And that's the significance of a king. What does a king do? The job of a king, an ideal king, not a corrupt king, the job of a king is to stand up and fight for his people. The job of a king is to make sure justice is done. The job of a king is to make sure that the kingdom is safe and not oppressed. To defend it against the threats that threaten that kingdom. To stand up heroically where ordinary people cannot. That's why a just king is to be celebrated. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is he? They want a Messiah. They want a king. They know they've got a prophet. But is he more than that? Could he be their king? Do kings ride around on donkeys? What kind of king does that? They see him, they're hoping that he is the Messiah and king that they want, but they don't recognize him yet. How do you recognize a king? Well, as I said, kings fight for you. Kings stand up and defend you. Kings are revealed by their courage in fighting your enemies. And of course, Jesus hasn't done that yet. Who is Jesus? I'm going to tell you a fairy tale. For me, it's one of the best unpackings of what the gospel is all about. But it's in the form of a fairy tale, so I hope this doesn't... uh, Some of you don't like fairy tales. Some of you are not sentimental at all. So just suspend your disbelief just for a moment, okay? Once upon a time, there was a country that had undergone a terrible, prolonged civil war because of the cruelty and corruption of its leaders, particularly the king. But it was an endless war, and so out of desperation, the remaining leaders agree to make the son of the king their new leader, their new king, just to end the bloodshed. But nobody trusts anyone. Nobody's happy. Everybody's watching each other. Is this new king going to be better than his father? Is he going to be just? Is he going to be loving? Is he going to take care of them? Or are they going to have to fight again? Everybody's watching him. So one of the great corruptions, what upset the the country the most, was that the previous king used the treasury of the country as his private personal purse. He would just take whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and stole the wealth of the country. And the new king says, that's never going to happen again. And anyone who does that will be punished, no matter who they are. But then one terrible day, it is discovered that someone has been raiding the treasury. And when they investigate, 
they find that it's his mother. She's gone along with the old patterns, the old habits of her previous life, and she's just taken money when she needed it from the treasury. The king's enemies know that they've got him. He's in a trap. What can he do? If he punishes his mother, his very own mother, he will be shown to be a heartless tyrant whose only interest is holding on to power. But if he doesn't punish his mother as he promised, then all his ideals and calls for justice are revealed to be nonsense, just words. He's in a trap. The day comes when justice is to be done, and everybody is there, and they're all watching. And his weeping mother is dragged out into the public square, and there is the whipping post where punishment will be done. And incredibly, the father, the, the son of his mother, the king of that new land, pronounces judgment on her, exceeds judgment, orders a hundred lashes, enough to potentially kill her. And everyone is dumbstruck. How could he possibly punish his mother? Possibly whipping her to death publicly in front of everybody. She's dragged out there to the whipping post, naked and weeping. And the prince or the king orders punishment to commence. But then, amazingly, he gets down from the throne and he goes to the whipping post, and he takes off his robes and all the signs of kingship, and he stands naked behind his mother so that the punishment will be inflicted upon him and not his mother. What has he done? He's upheld the law and justice. If you do wrong, there will be punishment, there will be judgment. But he's also upheld the rule of love. He is standing out of love in his mother's place to take her rightful, rightful punishment upon himself. Justice, love, are revealed. What seemed irreconcilable opposites are pulled together by the king's sacrifice. That is a perfect and beautiful picture of the cross. What happens when Jesus Christ is nailed up naked on that cross? Why does he do it? Remember, he doesn't, he's no victim. He goes there deliberately. He does that so that the justice, the punishment that everyone who believes in him deserves will be inflicted on him instead. Justice, love. That's the cross right there. And it's going to require next Sunday to get there. They're asking, who is this Jesus? This Jesus is their Savior. This Jesus is the promised Messiah. This Jesus is their returned King. But he's not going to be revealed until they see him naked on a cross. Until they recognize him there just for them. And it's true for all of us. 
until you've internalized that reality, your faith will be lukewarm. I encourage you to spend this next week thinking about why Jesus went to that cross, recognizing that he went there for you personally, that he took that punishment because he loves you personally. And that is the message of Easter. You're not alone. You have a king who would die for you. You have a king that loves you so completely that he'd give himself away. That is who Jesus is. And that knowledge will change your life. I encourage you to find it out this, this Easter. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ on the cross, you have revealed a love that we can scarcely comprehend. We thank you, Lord, that you do love us that much. And we pray, I pray, that this week, as we prepare to celebrate Easter, you would reveal yourself to each of us more nearly and more clearly. Lord, show us what it means that you love us. Show us the depths of that love so that we can see the depths of our life turned over to you so that we can repent and return to you so we can, as Christians, put our faith more fully in you. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.